You're listening to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. And we're back. Welcome to a special bonus series of The Feast. This episode will be the first of several that we'll be releasing between now and the end of December, before Season 4 kicks off in earnest on January 7, 2020. But before we start up our regularly scheduled episodes, we wanted to get you ready for our upcoming season with a few special feast stories that we've been wanting to release for a while. And what better time to release some extra portions of the show than right before that holiday dedicated to feasting, American Thanksgiving. And no, we're not spending this episode talking turkey. We're actually going back to a tried and true topic on the feast. Alcohol. Because you can't have a proper feast without a good drink in hand, right? Long-time Feast listeners might remember our episode on the great American history of eggnog. You may even remember we tried what was reputedly George Washington's legendary recipe of the stuff. We were inspired to go down the historical boozy route by our conversation with Virginia bartender and author of The Imbible, Michael Lamont. As bartender at Charlottesville's The Alley Light, he often looks not only to the past, but to the surrounding Virginian countryside to think up new concoctions for his bar. Now, in our eggnog episode, which we'll put a link to in our show notes in case you want to have another listen, we were inspired to try out a few nog recipes ourselves. But Micah also clued us into a very particular, and in some ways very historical ingredient that he uses in his cocktails, one that very few bartenders in America, let alone the world, know about or use. I'm talking, of course, about the hearty orange. Today, this little citrus varietal is found all over Virginia and the Upper American South, even reaching as far north as Pennsylvania. But as opposed to its distant cousins, like the navel or the Seville orange, you don't exactly want to sit down to a nice glass of hearty orange juice at the breakfast table. Despite it growing everywhere and anywhere it can in Virginia, the hearty orange is sour, bitterly so. It's also, well, hearty, nearly impossible to get rid of in your yard once it's taken hold, spreading its thorny branches as far as it can. Now, I can hear you asking, what on earth does this little citrus varietal have to do with history or with alcohol for that matter? Well, it all comes down to how the hearty orange came to be the bane of many a gardener's existence over in Virginia. Because, of course, the hardy orange isn't native to Virginia. It's not even originally from the Americas. Like all citrus, it started life over in Asia. And the hardy orange had to be brought over, likely by an inspired botanist in the mid-19th century. Why, you might ask? Well, a small burgeoning government agency that would eventually be known as the U.S. Department of Agriculture was trying to figure out how to grow citrus, you know, oranges, lemons, limes, that kind of thing, in North America. Because citrus, well, it can be dainty. It doesn't like cold, and it doesn't like frost. Well, at least most citrus doesn't. The hardy orange, in fact, lives up to its name by that fact. It doesn't faint at the slightest hint of snow. Those USDA botanists thought that if they could graft daintier citrus varietals, like the Seville orange, onto some hardy orange rootstock, 
Well, they could get their own homegrown oranges right here in the United States instead of shipping them from Europe or Asia, which, understandably, was costing everyone quite a bit of money. Problem was, the hardy orange tasted terrible. It was full of seeds. It was hard to pick. It was so very bitterly sour. Any attempt to use the hardy orange for something people would want to actually eat, well, it just didn't take, apart from adding some extra amounts of sugar to make a kind of marmalade. The USDA abandoned its winter-resistant rootstock and turned to other ideas. So the hardy orange became simply decorative in American households, a lovely shrub to keep in your yard. Or at least it was for a time. Which brings us to the next chapter in the illustrious history of this little hardy citrus. Finding itself in a new land, i.e. North America, the hardy orange was technically what we would call today an invasive species, introduced to a new ecosystem thanks entirely to human intervention. And invasive certainly is the right word to describe the hardy orange. After it fell out of favor with aspiring botanists, the hardy orange took root in North American soil, and soon its thorny branches could be found on the edges of hundreds, if not thousands, of properties, growing as fast and as wide as it could without a gardener to tame it back. Today, hardy oranges can be found on roadsides, on property borders, everywhere it isn't cut back still producing those little citrus sour balls every winter. But of course, the story of the hardy orange parallels so many other invasive histories. Plants or animals plonked down in a new environment and spreading wildly beyond anyone's expectations. Take dandelions, for example, the bane of gardeners everywhere in the States. Dandelion seeds were in fact brought over on purpose by Europeans as a food source. And today, you can't turn around without hearing about another plant or animal that is popping up somewhere, shall we say, unexpected. Armored catfish in Mexico. Kudzu, a Japanese vine, has wreaked havoc on the southeast. And emerald ash borers. These are these little green insects that look like crickets. Well, they've been responsible for the death of millions of ash trees. Take the European starling, for example which made its way to the U.S. in the 1890s, thanks to humans. With a current estimated population hovering around 200 million, starlings have often been considered the most successful foraging bird in the Americas. On that note, it was probably impossible to miss the feral hog meme that made the rounds on the internet earlier in 2019. Let's look at them for a second. Hogs, of course, were brought to the U.S. as a source of food centuries ago. But today, the descendants of those hogs, which are often now roving bands of wild pigs, cause billions of dollars worth of damage in almost every state they're found in. So what do feral hogs or armored catfish have to do with hardy oranges? Well, I'm glad you asked. Over the years, many people have asked the same question. How do you stem an invasive species once it's taken hold in a new ecosystem? Well, some people think that the answer may be that irrepressible human attribute, hunger. Find a way to cook and eat, or even drink in some instances, these invasive species, and, well, you might at least have a hope of stemming that invasive tide. Better yet, find a way to get booze out of an invasive species 
and you have a guaranteed recipe for success. And with that, enter Professor Ian Glomsky, founder of Vitae Spirits in Charlottesville, Virginia, home to the world's only hearty orange liqueur. I'm Ian Glomsky, the, uh, the founder of Vitae Spirits Distillery. Um, but I do have to say that my board of directors, which is also known as my family, like me to introduce myself as Professor Ian Glomsky, founder of Vitae Spirits Dist Distillery. They feel it's a good sales point, but my modesty often keeps me from calling myself professor. Um, <laughs> but my former colleagues also say, like of all my former colleagues from the University of Virginia come in here all the time, and they say once a professor, always a professor. So I think it's, it is legit, but uh, modesty stops me from doing it pretty frequently. But kind of as the story goes, uh, I've been making alcohol based since, since I was 18. Um, when I went to college, I was 18, so I was too young to buy beer, but I was not too young to buy beer yeast and, uh, sorry, barley yeast and uh, hops. So um, I started making beer basically in college before I was legally allowed to buy beer. And I went through a phase of making crappy beer. So I took my first microbiology course um, and I started kind of as a side project in the course where I got like extra credit and everything. I, I started isolating all the things that were growing in my beer and that kind of piqued my interest in uh, microbiology. So in some ways, like I became a professional infectious disease microbiologist because of beer, because uh, I was making crappy beer. So really for years and years, I had kind of parallel interest as well as what became parallel careers. Uh, one in the alcohol world and one was in my biomedical um, infectious diseases kind of career. I eventually went and got my PhD at Berkeley, where ironically, my brother became a winemaker in uh, California. He eventually decided he wanted to go out on his own. He basically started two wineries in northern Arizona that I became involved in. Also, I became kind of like their enologist. I set up their, uh, their kind of wine laboratory where we did tests for wine analysis. But I also ran forklifts, worked in the fields, and drove trucks around too through my involvement in the wineries. And to this day, I'm, I'm still on the board of directors for the two wineries along with the rest of my family. So um, I've kind of been doing professional alcohol for 15 years or so while I was a professor in the medical school at the University of Virginia. I, I guess I still am technically an anthrax specialist. So I do kind of, I've done vaccine development. I've done antibiotic development. I've taught med students. I've trained graduate students. And um, so I basically just had a midlife crisis type situation and decided I needed a change. And I had always had this alcohol thing kind of going around in the background. So that became something that I decided to make kind of a, a hobby, a career, which sometimes can be worrisome, you know, like taking something that's just for fun and making it your, your life could be scary. But we're about three or four years into it now. And more than one friend has told me my personality has changed for the better, <laughs> um, less stress and more smiles. And uh, I was talking about earlier today that I basically my homework now is I go home and I develop cocktails. So I have at least one or two cocktails a night just for the job. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough kind of sacrifice that we all need to make at times, but um, that's what my homework is now. So I founded Vitae Spirits, a distillery. Distilling is kind of like the most, in some ways, technically complicated way of making alcohol because you have to make good beer or wine 
But then you add another layer of complexity where you load that beer and wine into a still and uh, make high-proof spirits. Vitae Spirits is a pretty small, what one calls a craft distillery. There's a lot of things that go into craft. Some is size, but it's also kind of like our ethos and things of that sort. But something that I am specifically trying to develop in terms of what Vitae Spirits is, I'm not sure if you've kind of heard of the term terroir when it comes to wine. Mm -hmm. In the wine world, terroir, for the most part, is reflecting kind of these semi-intangible millions of variables that go into giving its a, a particular wine its unique characteristics. So you can have an acre of identical, say, Sauvignon Blanc separated by 100 feet from another acre of Sauvignon Blanc, and they can taste drastically different, all caused by, you know, like the angle of the sun, the particular um, microclimate, kind of the soils, things of that sort. And that's, that's often how terroir is kind of used in the wine world. Distilling doesn't quite have that same direct connection to agriculture, but the way I'm developing it is that our terroir, like kind of what makes our products and stuff unique, is both location but also the community in which we're, we're producing. An example is, uh, honestly, our, be our best-selling item is our golden rum, and that's a collaboration with Ace Biscuit and Barbecue next door to us. Ace Biscuit makes their house-made hickory and oak charcoal. So what we do is we get fresh sugarcane, and then we grill it on their hickory and oak charcoal. So we get a smoky caramelized sugarcane that we then infuse back into our rum. So we have a quote-unquote grilled sugarcane rum, and that is a unique product. And that exists simply because we're 30 feet away from Ace Biscuit and Barbecue. We have a coffee liqueur that is a collaboration with Mudhouse Coffee Roasters here in town. Um, we make a pawpaw liqueur, which we use pawpaw fruit that is it's one of the only members of the mango family that grows in kind of Appalachia. So that's a very regional thing. That then comes back around to the hearty orange. The hearty orange is uh, called hearty part, partly because it resists frosts. It is the most uh, frost resistant of, of the citrus family. And so it grows uh, all the way up here in Virginia. And actually it gets into Pennsylvania a little bit too in terms of its northern range. Some people, there's actually, I, I guess, a botanical debate about whether it's technically part of the citrus genus, but one of its names is uh, citrus trifoliata. Trifoliata is simply that it has leaves that kind of come out in triplicates and stuff like that. But it yields a orange, um, the hardy orange. It's pretty small. It's like the size of mm, about a golf ball or something like that. It's got lots of seeds, so there's not lots of fr like edible fruit inside of it. And it's also quite bitter. Basically, really, you only see it used as kind of marmalades and stuff like that. But I was also turned on to it to a uh, one of what I think is probably the the best local cocktail bar, the Alley Light. Uh, one of my buddies is kind of the the bar manager there, and he makes something called the Hardy Handshake Cocktail, where he, he basically uses locally harvested hardy oranges to make a marmalade and that's kind of like the bitter sweetening agent of one of the cocktails that he makes so so kind of all this came together and and that once again so whether it be our grilled sugarcane rum our coffee liqueur or now this this uh hardy orange liqueur are all things that only would have come together here in charlottesville and so in some ways that makes our products unique and that is the terroir or the community slash regional terroir that I try to kind of capture in our, uh, in our products. And so what it's come down to too, is that the hardy orange, the actual kind of shrub slash tree 
in some ways is, is considered an invasive species. It was, uh, it was introduced from, uh, from Asia, from Eastern Asia. It was kind of introduced primarily as a hedgerow type of thing. It has these huge thorns and it gets a little bit out of control. So if you prune it properly, you have a really good barrier. Um, when I'm collecting them, uh, I have to put on kind of like welding gloves and stuff like that because it has two or three inch long thorns. Uh, but basically, I put out the call to our community and people kind of told me if they have them growing in their backyards and stuff like that. And they call me or contact me in some way um, to tell me when they're ripe. It's usually kind of like late September and October or something. And they call me up. I go in with my welding gloves and collect the uh, the hardy oranges. That is a component in our orange liqueur. Uh, traditionally, orange liqueurs, uh, also known as triple sex are a balance between a bitter orange and a sweet orange. So the hardy oranges are bitter orange, and that's what I balance off with sweet navel oranges. Kind of better known orange liqueurs such as Cointreau or Grand Marnier, they use the, the bitter Sevilla orange in their uh, recipes. Uh, the Caribbean uses the Curacao orange as their bitter orange, and we basically use the, the Virginia hardy orange as our bitter orange in our orange liqueur triple sec and everything like that. So um, that's a little bit of... Uh, our story about the the orange liqueur, but also um, Vitae spirits and why we make orange liqueurs like that. Thank you. Um, that was that was fantastic. I'd love to know a little more about this picture you painted about going out with your welder's gloves. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Because I, I just got back from California, and there, of course, you know, there are these beautiful citrus groves, and like the fruit is mm-hmm. kind of literally low hanging off the tree. But yeah. it sounds like yeah. the uh, Hardy orange is a little bit more of a a, a difficult uh, fruit to get. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, like I um I actually when I one of my earliest trees that I spotted was um right on the border of two different properties, and I got permission to pick from that tree um, from one owner. Um, so I went out there. I had a, a step ladder. I had buckets. I had my welding gloves. I had eye protection and I'm, I'm sitting there basically building a platform because there it's not well organized at all i had a kind of like this was right next to a stream so i had to build a platform to do all this um picking and the other neighbor who happened to be a little old lady that literally came out there with a stick and was about to beat me because i was taking oranges from her tree and then i was like oh well this neighbor told me it was his tree and so basically she went over that neighbor and i had them basically fighting over their property line while i'm sitting up there in a huge get up of protective gear on a platform trying to pick these oranges and stuff like that and it all resolved well and like i basically ended up giving both of them a bottle (laughs) of booze and and things went well but it's it's funny because i go back every year now to that location the the little lady calls me up and says oh the the, the oranges are getting ripe, and she's looking forward to seeing me and getting her free bottle a again. A free bottle goes like a long so, way. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how it, Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, But that's the way it is. I basically have a network of people that have these oranges, and I pull up in our car with five-gallon food buckets, uh, usually some means to get higher up in the trees because they're uh, uh, because they are not well-organized, and sometimes it's a hedgerow where there's lots of little ones kind of sp- sprouting up. It's uh, it's actually it's 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 uh, dangerous. I mean, I usually like even though I have the protective gear on, I you, people can tell when I've been out picking because I'm super scratched up and I've I've had lots of puncture wounds in the process. I have an I actually have another funny story too, which is a, this is another one where 
was basically 10 feet away from Thomas Jefferson's grave. But yeah, so our, our batch one of uh, orange liqueur, a good number of those oranges came 10 feet away from Thomas Jefferson's grave. So like my little fantasy is that there's a couple of Thomas Jefferson molecules that were transported by the roots of that tree up into our, um, into our orange liqueur. Uh, so we kind of have a, a batch of Thomas Jefferson orange liqueur. But um, unfortunately, that tree started uh, kind of pulling apart the masonry and, and everything like that. So they took out the tree. So it was a one-time deal that it batches three and four of uh, orange liqueur will not have any Thomas Jefferson in them. Oh, man. So it's a limited founding father series. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it sounds like a lot of folks treat these more as like, as you were saying, they're invasive, but like almost a pest as a tree rather than something that they're cultivating and, and collecting from or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that is partly true. You know, like invasive versus pest depends on the person's point of view in a lot of different ways. They are fairly attractive trees. Like if you prune them properly, they can kind of have the classic orange tree umbrella shape and things of that sort. But nothing eats them. There's like there's no predators. They're they're resistant to most of the diseases. They are self fertile, so the fruit that they drop will sprout, and they they can get out of control if you if you don't keep on top of it. And having a really pokey, twenty foot tall tree that keeps on replicating in your yard is not a good thing if you don't want it there. Right. That being said, it's a nice green tree. Um, like I said, it's usually generally healthy. It's kind of got that the dark kind of waxy citrus leaves it has nice kind of white flowers in the um in the springtime in the right circumstances it's a nice tree to have around but if you're not willing to kind of like control it it can take over your yard and have a, a prickly mess to deal with so there's kind of this new an approach to eat the invasives now too so like there's a number of restaurants now that try to feature invasive species on their menu so that in a sense if if there's no natural predators of these things that have been introduced that humans become those predators, whether it be like zebra mussels or hardy oranges, things of that sort. So in a sense that we keep the invasive in control by human demand. And that's, I guess that could be one way of looking at it too. Yeah. Yeah. And because it sounds like um, up until now, you were saying that basically the only way people were using them was just like boiling them down into marmalade, like adding a bunch of sugar. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, um, that is the only real ways I've seen it seen it used um i i've kind of have seen it they they smell nice so i've seen it used as potpourri type things and stuff like that but on the kind of food side they're bitter and there's very little juice pulp to eat so because of all the seeds yeah so that's what um one of my friends is a uh a, a botanical artist so she actually did a drawing of the hardy orange uh for our bottles and i think it may be on our website too where i would say like Honestly, something like 50 to 75% of the interior volume is taken up by seeds. So uh, that's a real pain in the butt in terms of a food, unless you're just squishing it. Or like, honestly, I don't, I don't use the juice per se. I, I use the zest. So I'm taking the aromatic oils out of, out of the hearty orange, not the actual kind of like the bitter juice and stuff like that, which is just a slightly different use of it all. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, like, how do you get that hearty orange flavor in into the liqueur? There's a lot of uh, elbow grease, I would say, for the first thing. So it is, it, they ripen out of season. So like I said, from September to October is when they ripen up. 
yet I'm producing um, orange liqueur throughout the year. So we basically zest uh, for a day. Uh, it takes a couple of days. Like we, we basically have one of those little old timey grandma apple peeler crank type things. And we basically outfitted that to, to basically uh, zest or peel the hardy oranges too. So we, it takes a long time and it's messy and sticky and uh, you have to wear goggles because it'll hurt your eyes with the spray and everything like that. But so we zest them and then dehydrate them and then I uh, vacuum seal them in kind of like one of those vacuum sealer type things and then we freeze them and then we just pull out packs throughout the year that we, uh, that we basically use. Uh, it's very potent, so you don't need that much of it, luckily. Um, we have not yet run out um, in our year-to-year operations, but we get, we're pretty close to it. I'm going to have to probably start looking for a few more um, trees uh, to make sure that we have uh, all that we need. Because I actually use the hardy orange uh, in our gin, too. Uh, that's one of the citrus that is in our, um, our gin uh, botanical lineup, and... We have like 17 things in there, so it's a pretty complex gin and everything. But Hardy Orange is one of them, so we use it in two different products. So that's how we like, that's how we collect and preserve the Hardy Orange. We basically have a, uh, a basket in the path of the uh, alcohol vapors. So we basically heat up the alcohol, it vaporizes, it basically becomes like ethanol, alcohol, steam. And our still is set up so that we can fill this basket filled with um, uh, botanical things. So in our gin situation, I put all of our gin botanicals in there. In the orange liqueur situation, we load that basket with um, both uh, the hardy orange zest, but also um, navel orange zest. And as the alcohol passes through that, the alcohol dissolves and um, carries with it all the aromatic oils that are in whatever botanicals are in that basket. So then that hot vapor, when you cool it back down, that becomes a liquid alcohol that contains a lot of those aromatic oils. And actually when we do it, it's, it's almost like a concentrate. It's got so much uh, orange oil in it that um, if I dilute it down, it comes off the still at maybe like 170 proof or something like that. So I guess that's like 85% alcohol. But if I dilute that down to drinkable levels at 80 proof or 40% alcohol, there's so much oil that I literally get an oil slick on the top of that shot glass and it looks like I have like a almost a like a lentil to pea-sized blob of oil floating on top of the surface. So that's just it's really intense and um honestly at that level it's really not that drinkable just having an oil slick on it. So I do dilute down that concentrate to a level that doesn't cause oil slicks and stuff like that, but it's still a a pretty strong uh aromatic oil that we extract from it all. And so that's what, what comes off the still, like I said, is, is pretty high proof, but I add water to it just to make it drinkable. But, um, by federal regulations also, if I want to call it liqueur, I have to add at least 2.5% sugar to it. So it has to have a bit of sugar in it, but I put in the minimum amount I'm allowed to put in there by those federal definitions. So, uh, our orange liqueur is not like crazy sweet and syrupy and stuff like that. Um, but it, but it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty different. The, both the, um, we keep it at 80 proof. So it's a real alcohol, but the hearty orange itself does have a different flavor profile than both the Sevilla and Curacao oranges. It's a, I find it a little bit kind of greener, muskier than, um, the Sevilla and Curacao oranges, but, uh, it's, it's definitely different. So, I mean, which is pretty neat because as far as I know, I think 
It's a mm-hmm. unique product. I don't think anybody else is kind of making a hearty orange-based uh, liqueur um, that I know of. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I also wanted to ask you is how you kind of discovered or were inspired to use the hearty orange. Um, did you just kind of taste the marmalade or like when you moved to Virginia, people were talking about it? What was What was the thought that this was another local ingredient that you wanted to incorporate into your bottles? Very few questions I'll answer will have a single single response. Uh, so it was a bunch of things. Um, one was that I, I kind of I was raised a New Englander, and that's way beyond the range of any citrus. So moving to Virginia, um, I was exposed to a lot of different, uh, basically plants and and trees that I had never uh, kind of seen before. Uh, that being said, my wife is also a landscape architect. She's pretty aware of the botanical world. Every time we move, she has to kind of learn the new set of species and stuff like that that they may run across in projects and stuff like that. So I can't say for certain whether she introduced it to me, but she she certainly knew what it was when we were just kind of whatever, walking around town and taking a look at things and, and things like that. But then, like I said, at least one of my buddies that was a cocktail guy also had had tapped into it too. And just in general, he uses a lot of local things in general. He basically has... Uh, foragers that bring in interesting things for him to play with and stuff like that so so it was, it was a number of different things and I, I just thought it was kind of curious that this kind of underappreciated thing was around and that i wanted to introduce people to it in a lot of different ways you know you mentioned uh the alley light and the hearty handshake do you have a favorite cocktail that uses the orange liqueur yeah and it's it's simple and so um I often go on the road just kind of doing tastings and stuff like that. So we developed a cocktail that we call the Pomplamousse Rose. So Pomplamousse being grapefruit in French. And uh, this is on our website uh, in terms of if you ever want to see what the uh, the actual recipe is. But we basically, it's all the alcohol in there is our 80 proof orange liqueur. We add a uh, a good fresh squeezed pink grapefruit juice to it. And then we make a rose flower simple syrup. So we get a little bit more sweetness from a simple syrup, but then we also just get rose flower water from, um, we get it from our local Afghani grocery store. Rose flower water is used quite a bit in kind of Middle Eastern, Southern Asian cuisine, so you can just pick up bottles of it. So really, when you make this cocktail, it's essentially three ingredients, and it's super tasty. It was, uh, it was in our tasting room summer cocktail menu for a while, and it was my, my wife's favorite at the time, so... Um, I decided to take it on the road. So I, I often pour it when I'm doing tastings on the road and stuff like that too. And the, I love the ingredients cause it's basically a garden and a glass, right? You got orange, you got grapefruit, you got rose, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's super bright. I mean, sometimes people aren't so fond of grapefruit, um, because of the bitterness and stuff, but I, I find that super refreshing and, and adding that little bit of the, the simple syrup, uh, the sweetness offsets a little bit of the, the grapefruit bitterness and stuff like that too. And then you have all, you have the alcohol and all the other kind of the hearty, hearty orange and uh, navel orange citrus all in there too. Wow. And are there any kind of future plans? Uh, are you going to stick with the recipe? Or are you going to tweak a little bit or a limited edition of any kind? You know, I've been toying with the idea of uh, barrel aging it. Hmm. So um, there's some like, uh, like Grand Marnier. I'm not sure if you know Grand Marnier. That's brown. That's a brown um, orange liqueur. And that's basically because they uh, have they make with brandy, kind of barrel-aged brandy and stuff like that. And my friend over at Alley Light has actually, in little barrels, put our uh, our orange liqueur and stuff like that. And so it becomes a brown orange liqueur. 
And I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like sometimes when you age stuff, kind of those high ephemeral notes leave. Um, so I, I think it'll change, but I think it'll, it'll maybe become more of kind of like a candied, kind of a candied marmalade um, orange liqueur if I put it in a barrel for, I don't know, probably a minimum of six months, but I'd maybe let it sit in there longer and kind of see how it develops and stuff like that. And then I would have, um, I have a series that's kind of my distiller's reserve type stuff that I, uh, that's only available at the distillery. And I kind of beta test it in the tasting room and see whether it's like popular and then get feedback and I tweak it and things of that sort too. Um, so that's, that's one idea I've been thinking about for our orange liqueur is, uh, aging it. But besides that, I, I'm pretty damn happy with our, our product. So I won't purposely change it. The truth is it's based on agricultural products. So, you know, like it will have some minor changes from year to year. Um, but that's also why we put batch numbers on our bottles so that people recognize that, uh, this is not a solid immutable thing. I mean, we try to do quality control, but agriculture, agriculture, and, and that's why a bottle of wine from the same vineyard is different from year to year and stuff like that too. So in some ways I like that being reflected in our products, showing that d- direct connection to agriculture too. I was wondering if maybe the orange liqueur has spurred like you were talking about before this kind of eat the invasive species on the plate. Have you started seeing the use of the hardy orange a little bit more? Are people coming back to the hardy orange around Virginia? You know, what's funny is, uh, it's certainly entering awareness. I can't see, I can't say honestly that I've seen a lot of, I guess, rediscovery of it, but partly, I mean, I'm not saying I'm a Johnny Appleseed or anything, but partly the fact that we made that and I go out, like I'm a salesman for our products. Like, I mean, I go and pour it for bartenders in DC and Maryland and Chicago, things of that sort. So that, uh, in particular people that are mixologists that are looking for a new thing or a different thing or whatever, it's, it's starting to get more, um, more notoriety and stuff like that too. Um, I don't expect to see any farms planting hardy orange anytime soon, but, uh, but certainly the novelty is something that, uh, that is starting to spread a little bit. This episode was written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Our digital director and in-house photographer is Mike Port. Special thanks to Ian Glomsky, of course, and the entire Vitae Spirits team for giving up their time to talk to us about their hearty orange liqueur. Find more about Vitae Spirits at their website, vitae, V-I-T-A-E, spirits.com. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more information about this and all our episodes at our website, thefeastpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at feast underscore podcast. If you're interested, you can also sign up for our newsletter on our website, where we release behind-the-episode information and a few tidbits about the upcoming season. We'll have a few more episodes for you as part of this holiday gift set, but don't forget to subscribe to The Feast so you don't miss the launch of our new season starting January 7, 2020. Please also take a minute to rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back again soon with another great meal, or should I say drink, that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.